Hello and welcome to what is the first and hopefully an ongoing series of Q&A editions of the Curzon Film Podcast. After a recent screening of Luca Guadagnino's phenomenal Call Me By Your Name at Curzon Soho, we were lucky enough to welcome a regular Five Live Film contributor and Telegraph film critic Robbie Collin to host a conversation with Luca along with the film's lead actors Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. For insights into the film's location, music, and just how high those short shorts went, do stay tuned. If you're just joining us on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, as next week we have Greta Gerwig coming on the show to talk about Ladybird, and we've just released episodes on foreign language Oscar nominee Loveless, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, and a special conversation with Bottom and now Star Wars own Aid Edmondson about joining the Royal Shakespeare Company for Twelfth Night. But now it's time to pass over to the wonderful crowd at Curzon Soho and your host, Robbie Collin. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming along to today's special Q&A screening of Call Me By Your Name. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome to the stage director Luca Guadagnino and Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. Congratulations all on the film. I gather you've just arrived here from the premiere in Paris, so there are people uh, around the world who are still seeing this for the first time. While the, um, the final scene is still you know, in, in, in the air, let's talk about that, because, uh, Timothy, I wonder, when, when you're playing a moment like that, did that, where did that fall in the shooting schedule? Were you able to, to draw on things that you'd already played, or was, was that something that came yeah, it's, uh, ab- That's absolutely the case. We shot that scene maybe three days from the end of the movie. The scene that we shot precedent to the last scene in the film is the scene with the father. So I shot that scene with Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays Mr. Perlman, and that scene obviously has a very, I don't know, maybe nostalgic's not the right word, but certainly, uh, I don't know, vaguely emotional uh, charge scene. So uh, when it came time to do that last scene, uh, is that, wait, is that our first AD right there? No. Nope. <laughs> nope. Never mind. Nope. She's, she's not making a face, so I'm just pointing to a random person. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then when it came time to do it, yeah, it was like living the living the nostalgia of the moment and what we had just experienced and getting to work with Luca and Army for a month and a half. And there's a particular detail in that scene. It's like this kind of magical occurrence, the, the fly that buzzes into shot. I don't know if people, if people spot this. Certainly on my, on my second time of the film, this, this became... And there's, there's something incredible about that moment. And obviously, you could have used a take where there was no fly, but you used I mean, the fly... I after such an effort in directing the fly... <laughs> It wasn't CG, was it? It was the real. No, thing. no, no, no. It's a fly. <laughs> what I mean, this is characteristic of all your work, but I think specifically in this film, Luca, you have kind of left the door open to the real world coming into the I- into every scene. And I was lucky with the fly because the truth is that uh, in these countryside homes, I'm sure it's the same here in the UK. Uh, in the winter, sometimes you find an insect like a fly trying to survive the winter. And it was a, uh, an accident, but a lovely metaphor for, for Elio. I mean, I want to ask you about playing the phone call in that final scene as well. Um, your character's declaration, I remember everything, seems to sum up, because the book is written mainly in, in flashback, the, the, the main relationship is all in flashback, whereas, of course, in the film it's present tense. But that seems to capture something of the, 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 the essence of what the, the, the original novel does. And um, I wonder if you could tell us about playing that scene, because, I mean, were you even present for it, or did you, did you record it um, a separate time? No, I, I was there. I was about 
maybe 10, 15 feet away. Uh, I was just around a corner, actually, on a phone, if I remember correctly, right? The, they were... Yeah, you were upstairs in the green room. Oh, that's right. And he was downstairs. That's right, that's right. So, so I was, you know, just one staircase away. And, uh, and I remember just getting on the phone and we just had, because, because there was no camera there, because there was no one around, because it was just me on a phone alone in a room, it felt because we did really shoot it towards the end of the movie. It was kind of like one of the penultimate things, except for his scene at the fireplace, from, from my character anyway. It just, it felt incredibly authentic to just be on the phone away from the set talking about how I remember everything because it was such a magical experience getting to make this film and uh, such a beautiful experience working with Luca and working with Timmy. So um, it was also really funny because they would call cut and then I would just sit there for like five or 10 minutes and be like, hello? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, shh, shh, we're setting it up, we're setting it up. Go, oh, oh, okay, okay, and then I wait. Action, they go, oh, okay, okay, when this phone's and then they call cut and I just wait again, but it was, uh, it was great. How did you both go about sounding out Oliver and Elio's chemistry? Because it seems, you know, to me that there seems to be this elements of, uh, obviously there's the, there's the attraction between them, but there's this kind of fraternal bond as well, and there's, there's kind of an element of mentorship too. It's a complicated relationship. How did you, where did that come from? Were there preliminary discussions with Luca or, or how did you build that? There were a lot of conversations with Luca. We spent a lot of time sitting around his kitchen table, uh, eating delicious food, drinking delicious wine, and talking about a beautiful script, which in and of itself was a rewarding experience. But then also, um, they, they brought Timmy out about four weeks before I came and really just familiarized him with the town and with the place, and he was taking the piano lessons and working on his Italian, and I mean, his French is flawless, but he was, he was really kind of, you know, ingratiating himself into the town. So then I showed up about three or four weeks before we started filming, and Luca, you know, as part of his genius, just said, okay, you guys don't talk about anything, get on bicycles, and just go, go ride around the town. Timmy, show him around. And we spent weeks riding around the town. He would say, that's where you get a good cup of coffee, that's where you get the great pizza, that's a great gelato shop. And we just really had the luxury of time without feeling any pressure or any sort of hurried sense of, you know, we have to get ready for this. He gave us the luxury, you know, that, that you can feel in the movie where just everything is allowed to take its time. And he gave us time to get to know each other. And as Timmy says, I think it's just one of the luck of the universe things where we just genuinely liked each other. And we really enjoyed the time that we got to spend together. And we were on a bike ride one day and I said to him, you know, if only you knew how little I know about the things that matter. And they, and they said, what things that matter? I said, you know what things I'm talking about. <laughs> so, Luca, does that replace... <laughs> does that replace rehearsal for you? Or is, is that something that happens in, in, in tandem with rehearsal? I mean, running lines. Well, I, I fit the re rehearsal as a theatrical uh, process, uh, and I did uh, direct the theater a few times, opera, and I enjoyed that very, very much, and I see that as a very specific part of the stage uh, direction, which I see as a different kind of job of mine, and so I, I just don't see it, like, I don't understand. Because uh, it's not immediacy that uh, you strive for when you direct. It's it's something a bit more different. It's it's uh, try to make th them uh, um, uh, open 
in a way that it's not just the lines and the enacting of the lines and the perfecting of those lines pronunciation that counts and it's not even the simply the blocking but it's it's the capacity of uh, disappearing and reappearing both as actors and people into the characters and that happens to be only if there is a confidence and a trust between the people involved and so I think the answer is yes. It, just on that point with the nosebleed scene specifically, that struck me as a, a moment where that approach seemed to really pay off because, you know, you, you guys, the, the chemistry between you, it feels like it's not being overthought. It just kind of happens naturally. I mean, how much of the the interactions between the two of you was scripted? And, and the nosebleed scene, when you retreat indoors and then you, you, you kind of hide down behind the counter. I don't know, it seemed like the uh, the gift of getting to act in a lot of wide shots that, um, you know, the relationship could be communicated physically and as like a dance of sorts and a push and pull as opposed to um, with dialogue. And uh, that's a great joy too to work with great dialogue. But this is, I think, as an audience member, I always like this better, moments of spontaneity. And, the you know, the senior reference, I think, was actually pretty strictly blocked, actually, because we had to get the ice. And that was one of the more difficult scenes to find where the camera went, if I remember correctly, and maybe one of two on the shoulder shots in the movie. But, um, yeah, because it's a, it's a tiny. It's a tiny little room. But for, I mean, I don't know. It was like Luca really gave us a lot of room to play. And knowing that, like, not as crass, not, not as crassly as, like, thinking that it all had to be subtle, but knowing just the tone of Luca's movies and how subtle and refined the performances are, I know I had the freedom feeling like, okay, I can try crazy stuff from take to take or come in and out of frames. And I'm sure there's a lot of artificial moments in that, but they just didn't make them into the movie because there was the room to play and mess up and, and then find those moments more organically. Just on the point of finding camera placement, this film was all shot with one lens, right? It was all 35 mil and that was, um, that was the end of it. Um, why would you choose to, to work like that, particularly when you've got this house that has so many kind of romantic little nooks and crannies in it that will, would make shooting with you know, this, this wide variety of lenses much, uh, much easier on the day? Well, because I, 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 I've, been, I've been using uh, the means in a way that were, they've been always very pr prominent. And uh, I felt that in this case, uh, for a movie in that uh, didn't originate from me, meaning that I did not thought of making this movie when I read the book in the first place. I, I, I became the director very, very f down the line. I started to think more and more that maybe there was a way in which the characters were the driving force of the film, also in terms of the language of the film. And uh, I, I, I had the privilege of uh, meeting once uh, the great Canadian maestro, David Cronenberg, and he told me that he usually uses one lens. And I was like, really? And I remember Fassbinder does, 35. And uh, he spoke to me about the way he uses one lens. Usually they use uh, with Sushitsky's DP a wide lens, like 24. And, uh, and then I spoke to my DP and I said, let's make some tests and see what do you feel do we feel is the most uh, uh, adherent uh, lens to the general look of the film. And that's how we picked the 35. And it was a very freeing experience for all of us because we had one camera, one lens. I, I, we didn't have to think anymore about that. And there was not this medium. But in a way, uh, it's a sort of empowerment of cinema, probably. Let's talk a bit about the, the locations that come out looking so incredible on that lens. I, it, because 
the original book wasn't located in in Crema, right? It was it was it was set uh, in Liguria on the seafront. Yes, right. And then James Ivory's initial adaptation was of set the script in Sicily. Yes. So why James couldn't understand how we could have um, in, uh, Roman refindings in the north of Italy, and I had to explain him that there was findings in the north of Italy, but I didn't convince him until he saw the film eventually. The fact of the matter is Luca also lives in Crema, so there was that added convenience. Yeah, yeah, that was a very good convenience. How big a, um, a part did the actual house itself play in deciding to shoot in Crema, though? Because the, the house is like, specifically... I knew the house. house. I'd seen the house before, and I thought it was very good in terms of the geography of the house, the, the, com the two rooms communi communicating to one another. I like the idea that it looked, uh, uh, in a way, old and, 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 and established, and, but yet was crumbling and, and deprived. It communicated to me in a way that was immediate, what kind of family could have been the Permans. Um, and the countryside around reminded me a lot of uh, Bertolucci's uh, Pianura Padana, actually the same it's the same region. And so it, all these things, along with the sleeping in my bed, went together <laughs> into my decision. And there's that fantastic sequence when you're both out cycling and stop off for a drink of water at this country house and then up on the wall, above the, the doorway, there's a photograph of Benito Mussolini. Um, and I gather that was actually there when you showed up to, to shoot. That wasn't a prop that was brought along. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, that's Duce country up there, for sure. <laughs> Let's open this to questions from the audience. Let's start towards the back in the middle there. There is a microphone with, yeah, with the... The last seconds of, uh, of that film, when Timmy... Uh, breaks the fourth wall and looks right in the camera and I was thinking if both of you could tell us more about this breaking the fourth wall thing. Thank you. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I, uh, shoot, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, it's an unanswerable question because it, it is uh, for any of the audience members to, to, for each of you to answer, I guess, right? Yeah, it's like the art takes place in the head of the audience member, not on screen. Luca, all of your films have uh, these incredibly sensual engagement with, with food, and I'm not just talking about um, Timothy, you and the peach, although we can, we can discuss that later. But tell us a little bit about your, your use of, of food, and because in this one it's so vivid. Army, there's that great moment where you decapitate the egg and the yolk goes kind of flowing everywhere, and there's this enormous gasping fish that's brought into the house one day. Um, Tell us a little bit about your use of food symbolism in this, and then we can talk about the peach. Uh, well, in, in Athiman's novel, there is this kind of almost exoticism of Italy with the great food, and it goes on and on describing that. Uh, and I, I can s only say that we try not to focus on that kind of point of view on, on, on the folklorism of food, but more about making sure that what happened on the table and the breakfast and that during the scenes was what could have happened in the place, uh, in, a, in that given place in reality. Um, the, eggs, uh, the egg is a, uh, it, it, this shot belongs to another scene that we eventually cut off the movie and that uh, my wonderful editor brought back and put it as a punctuation. And I, and I think the way he uses it makes the thing becomes uh, 
so strong. And Timothy, when you were playing the Peach scene, I mean, obviously this is a key moment in the novel, so you must have known it was going to be in the film. And what I love about it is when you read on paper what happens, it just sounds nuts. But then in the heat of the moment, it seems completely logical. Um, how did you get into Elio's mindset for for that scene? What, what did you think was going through his head? It's like, you know, sensory adaptation. So I took like a, the night before, I took a bath with a bunch of peaches. Like, <laughs> and um, that was a joke, but um, so. That's it was disappointing. Really, I, I, honestly, like uh, Andre Osman, who wrote the novel, and Luca had communicated to me before we shot that scene that maybe it, would, it wasn't going to be able to make it into the movie because maybe it just simply worked better as a literary metaphor than it could ever in a movie. And that's always like a great relief as an actor. Um, when you jump into a scene thinking, you know, if it's good, it'll make it in there. And, and, it's, uh, and if not, it won't. And it just seemed like, you know, no matter how silly it sounds, like just trying not to lean into any of the comedy or thinking that it's funny or, or I'm not trying to, you know, have a perspective watching myself doing it and rather just thinking, how would this actually happen? What would the experience be for, you know, a young person exploring this? Was it the most nerve-wracking scene to shoot, or was there anything else that felt well, no, more No, I mean, like, honestly, like, the piano sequence was more nerve-wracking. The nerve-wracking was uh, uh, cycling. Yes, yeah, cycling, things like that. Yeah, well, Army, like, there's that amazing shot, yeah, where Army, you know, zooms by without even his hands on the handlebars. But, like, again, like, the piano, the piano sequence was what I got out there early to train for and why I was out there early. So I thought on the day, like, oh, God, like, I, I got to show them that, that um, they didn't make a mistake. And... Um, but for the peach stuff again, like it feels like kind of out there, and it might not even make it in. It kind of feels like all right, make make of it what you will, and and that's more exciting than anything. Another question, uh, yeah, front row. Hi there, um, I I love the film, so thank you very much for it. I was just wondering that. So the book is really written from from Elio's point of view, and and he often kind of mistakes or misjudges uh, Oliver's actions. Um, and I was wondering how important it was for you to be able to show us um, Oliver's point of view. And especially, like how how we 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 get to see Elio through Oliver's eyes. Well, I, I think that uh, the movie starts with Elio and grows into allowing Oliver to get into the into the position of the narrative as well. It's a sort of uh, dance between these two characters because the novel is a first single person uh, account from a pe from a place far away from the uh, from the events. And and um, I, f I struggle with the idea of a voiceover and stuff like that. And so it's like uh, I I like the idea that we we can s dance with with these two characters, and uh, we eventually um, are locked with them until he goes away. Timothy, did having that enormous block of internal monologue, even though it wasn't transposed into James's script. Was that at all useful when you were preparing or was it something that you had to yeah, kind of Yeah, very useful and I, I think it's always interesting when Army speaks about that because, you know, I've, I've heard Army say before it's he couldn't go through the book because it's so fiercely from the point of view from Elio once we started shooting. Obviously, we both read it. Um, in the pre-production process, even maybe to an exaggerative degree, I like to, you know, really have the character like almost be performing it or something but when it comes time to doing it, you know, just let it all go. But then on the days where I'd get lost, it was like a Bible or something because it's so clear um, what's going on. Like, I love the bit in the film where 
uh, Oliver comes over and starts massaging Elio's shoulder because, you know, it's a second or two seconds in the movie. And in the book, it's a pretty, you know, long passage that's very detailed, but it was like a lot to pull from. So if anything, it was, it was a benefit, never, never a constriction. Army, did you have to go through and kind of decode what Oliver was really like from Elio's monologue? Yeah, I'm, I mean, as, as Lucas said, the, the book is really from the, it's almost taken entirely from the interlocution of, of Elio. And he is a highly emotionally volatile, you know, young man. And it's it's very subjective also, because if Oliver came down and sat next to him at breakfast and said, you know, how was your night? Then Oliver was the greatest person in the entire world. He's, I'm so happy he's here. But if he came down and didn't say anything and just walked out the door, then he was an asshole. <laughs> so it, it's not exactly reliable from the you know in terms of building the character of Oliver there's 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 only a few actual lines in the book that really kind of gave me any really concrete definition of his his backstory one of which being from the phone call when he says you know your parents know and he says yeah and he says you're so lucky because if my parents knew they would send me to a correctional facility and that was a huge hint in terms of sort of building the sense of, of cover in Oliver. You know, all the times that he says later, all the times that he just walks away, it's not because he's just so brashly overconfident that he just doesn't care what anybody thinks. It's because it's when the two of them are together and he's feeling something that, that he can't quite identify. And he doesn't know what it is, but he knows that it makes him nervous and he knows that whatever it is, whatever's back home would never approve. So there's that little bit, and then there's also the thing about him being Jewish from the Northeast. And in my research, you know, in the early 80s, it was not an easy time to be Jewish in the Northeast. It was, uh, it was pretty anti-Semitic, you know. I mean, it, it wasn't something that you could be really public about, uh, which is why the fact that he wears the star is also, you know, his way of, of kind of overcompensating in a way. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't totally reliable in terms of source <laughs> material for the development of a character. But also, if you if you did filter it and kind of went through it through the prism of understanding that it's really the perspective of Elio, then you could kind of glean little things here and there. One of the things that really struck me about it is um, Elio was obsessing over Oliver's shorts, the various different colors, as I found myself doing since seeing the film. But uh, tell tell us about. Tell I mean right? I'm not alone. Okay. Um, tell us about those. Costumes, you know, we'll send you some of the shorts. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Tell uh, us about the characters, you know, the, the, the costumes that they, they use it because they, they feed so much into who they are. Like the, the instant Oliver kind of breezes into the house with this you know, enormous yeah. voluminous shirt. Well, uh, Julia Piersanti, who who uh, was our our wardrobe designer found just incredible clothing. I mean, and a lot of it is original stuff that goes back to 1983s. And a lot of the stuff that Timmy wore, correct me if I'm wrong, was her husband's stuff that was still in the closet that she was like, oh, now you're gonna wear this, now you're gonna wear this, now you're gonna wear this. I remember, but I, I clearly remember the first wardrobe fitting we had. I, I put on these shorts and they just kept going up and kept going up and kept going up. And I was like, good God. <laughs> Uh, but you acclimate and then all of a sudden you're like I feel so free in these things like these things are great and then when I went home and put on my regular shorts I felt like I was drowning in fabric let's have another question from the audience um, great. Um, I must apologise for sort of waxing lyrical for, for a second but I must say thank you so much for this movie it means an incredible amount to me um, just to say to, to me I never thought anybody could bring Elio to life the way that you did he's an absolute joy on screen to Luca I'd So 
sorry, <laughs> I'm taking this moment um, to, <laughs> to look at. I'm so grateful that this movie exists. Your heart and soul is clearly in this film, so thank you so much. And Ami, you, you actually reduced me to tears. And the, the, the particular moment I want to ask about, um, it's the scene in Bergamo when Elio is asleep, and there are a few seconds of what, what look like negatives. And Ami's, your performance afterwards, it looks like um, Oliver's about to break in two. It's outstanding. Um, I just would, lo- I would love you to talk about what that moment in negative means. This is a sequence with the switched colours. Yeah, yeah I remember, I remember. Well... <laughs> Uh, the, the scene that you described, that I remember, uh, was shot uh, as, a, as a long take. Uh, we are with Oliver, who is not naked in the real scene because uh, we had all the square in front. <laughs> and then there is Elio, and then we discover Oliver sitting on the bed. Uh, but uh, when we go on Elio, I was discussing with my editor that I like the idea to, to, to briefly have an insight in his mind, uh, in his in subconscious, in, in his dreams. And, um, and uh, I won over my editor. He didn't like the idea. He thought it was out of the register of the language of the film. Um, but we have shot uh, a beautiful scene in the same square where uh, Elio confesses to Oliver that he loves him, which happens in the script before they go to Bergamo, where they go back to the same monument and they climb up the monument. And uh, I really missed the scene, and I, I, I thought maybe we should use it uh, and as if that is a sort of dreamt uh, aim of uh, Elio uh, to be with him forever, in a way. So we used these two snippets and we made them in negative to pay homage to Scorsese's The Cape Fear. And that's it. I don't know if what's the significance. It's a dream. Another question. Yep. Uh, it's my first time seeing the film, and I absolutely loved it. My question is: in your films, there seems to be sort of a flowing sense of sensuality and desire, and sort of longing for another human being. Um, and then there's that moment when they climb up, climb up the mountain, um, where the waterfall is, and uh, Army's character looks back, and he sort of, and it's sort of, to me, that was sort of. Um, Look at us, we're, we're free now, you know, uh, nothing is holding us back. Um, so the question is, how do you portray that on screen, uh, this sort of sensuality, this uh, physical desire to be with someone? Well, I think I have great uh, complicity with uh, wonderful actors and friends. I think there is no other way you can reach uh, a level of... Uh, uh, poignancy if you don't have uh, a team of people you work with that are uh, capable of uh, engaging into that kind of uh, conversation starting from them through my crew and head of departments it's a mutual thing I would say yeah and th- 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 thank you because I, I dearly love the sequence on the waterfall by the way in in the book uh, they go to Rome and they talk t- they become part of a group of intellectuals Roman intellectuals which sounded very uh, alluring to Asiman, being American, but because I know many of those people, I found <laughs> impossible to, to put on the screen Italian intellectuals. <laughs> and I still remember the critiques I got for the Italian Carabinieri in the bigger splash back in Italy. So I said to myself, no, I'm not going to go there. But then uh, Ivory 
script uh, uh, took place, uh, took them uh, onto a f tuna fishing e e exploration in the because it was Sicily. Um, and then when we went, and there was always a crowd of people. But then I thought, maybe these two want to be alone. They want to be alone. And, I, and, and th this water you see in the Lombardian countryside comes from those mountains. So in a way, Elio is uh, being so thoughtful of bringing him to the origin of the water of the region. And I thought it was great. So that's what we did. And to answer your question about the, the moment in the waterfall where I, I turn around, uh, that was a, it was a, it was a crazy day. Uh, we had to all, you know, everybody carry equipment up this massive mountain to get it all up there because there was no roads and it wasn't even actually a, a waterfall. It was a hydroelectric dam that they could open the water for once. <laughs> and right before we shot it, they said, okay, open the dam. They said, it'll be about 10 minutes before the water comes out. And Luca goes, okay, I want you to think about the possibilities of impossibility. <laughs> and I went, what? And he goes, I want you to think about the possibilities of impossibility. And I was like, I, 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 wait, no, 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 wait, wait, hold on, I don't understand. He goes, just do it. Boom. And he hit me, like, hard, like, kind of like this. And it just stunned me. And then he turned around and walked down the mountain. And then uh, the water started to fall, and they said, action. And I kind of turned around like, I think he just hit me. <laughs> and I was terrified because I thought, now he's coming back, and he's going to hit me back. But... <laughs> If he hits me back, I'm done. <laughs> and I was just thinking, ooh. <laughs> just at the end of that sequence, there's um, at, at the, the train station after um, Elio's said goodbye to Oliver and he makes the phone call back to his, <coughs> to his mother. Um, it's, it's one of a few moments in the film where there is a, a, a kind of a, a figure just there in the frame who hasn't anything to do with what's going on, but it's an old lady who's sitting towards the back of the... The, the railway station and you know throughout the, the film in, in the Bergamo sequences as well there, there are people sort of milling around and it's kind of hard to to know whether they've been cast or whether they're just kind of you know there through happenstance um how, who were they that was a, 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 an idea i had i asked it for an old lady and we found the right one and we put it there <laughs> i gave it i'm serious i put the fan on her she was great she didn't know what she was doing, but she was fantastic. But the old lady where we go and there's the picture of Mussolini and she's sitting there peeling beans, she was just, she just happened to be there, right? No, she is the owner of the house, but uh, we, once we made the scouting and we decided to shoot there and leave Duce Mussolini over there, we also asked her to be there and okay. we gave her beans to I thought that was a really organic moment. I just went up to this old lady and started peeling beans with her. And I was like, this is amazing. Now it's all fake. Uh, let's have another question from the audience. Uh, yeah, th there in, in, in the middle. Um, yes, yeah. Okay, the Jewish thing is really interesting to me for an obvious reason. But it's so nice to see Jewish people in a film. Subtle, chic, ordinary, not over the top, just people. Nothing, nothing to do with being Jewish. They just were Jewish. It was charming. And I know this is a bit strange, but I started wearing my stuff after the film. Oh. I've got no idea why. I'm an old lady. I'm straight. I love this film. <laughs> I just started wearing it. And Wh I why will are you say, here? Huh? <laughs> Bravo and grazie. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
There was another question yet yeah, in the yellow top in the dungarees just a few rows now. Hello. I wanted to mention the music in the film, but uh, specifically the physical embodiment of that music, especially Army's scene, you know, with the, with the dancing. And um, <laughs> Timmy as well, you did a lot of like slides and stuff. So I just wanted to, um, also I heard that you, the final scene, you had like an earpiece that had visions of Gideon playing. So I just wanted to like um, explore music in the film and how that affected your performances. I really love that question. It really has so little to do with me besides that final scene and it's all thanks to Luca but I mean I love just going through the movie and seeing that there's Bach and Ravel and this classical music and then there's the new music from Sofian Stevens but also Talking Heads and Psychedelic Furs. It's really like a total testament to Luca's genius and his ability to, to, to mend these uh, songs together. Speaking to that last scene, um, again, that was Luca's idea where he said, it's probably gonna be a three, four minute take because we're gonna want the credits to be rolling over it. So I think you should have the song playing. And then like, it, you know, I don't know what it would have been to not have it. I wouldn't have been able to time it as well. And it almost became like an acting exercise of sorts where it felt like channel whatever's going on in the song. And like that song has its own arc that in in the tone of nostalgia really relates to the movie too and he keeps asking if it's a video if it's like a memory if it's a if it's something that's played out on screen that's a soundbite I stole from you um, and uh, uh, yeah so yeah Luca tell us about Sufjan Stevens's involvement in, in, in the film was he someone that you always thought this is this is going to be the guy who, who can who can really bring something to this with uh, with some new songs or did you look at using purely um, existing music from him no, it starts with the idea of the novel being not with the with the fact that the novel is told in first person singular um, and on uh, in James script there was still some remnants of of this voiceover of Elio which I wanted to really not use because uh, I, I didn't uh, thought it was the um, right in terms of tone. But I, I had a sort of fascination with the idea of the omniscient narrator, like in, in like, uh, like the voice of Thackeray in Barry Lyndon, for instance, or Edith Worthen in The Age of Innocence, uh, or um, the magnificent Amberson. Uh, uh, and one day I will do that. Uh, but uh, um, so I, I started to think like maybe instead of having the narrator, we could have someone punctuating the narration with little songs and maybe some little phrases showing up during the, m interrupting the action. And I know it's crazy, but, and I know that's not the movie you saw, but that was the origin of it. And I always loved Sufyan. I think he's a fantastic artist. His view, music, lyrics, voice is all combined in a, such a aching, uh, poetry it's so beautiful and is is also his face is so open there is a, such an openness in his face so i called him and said listen would you like to do the narrator of the movie come up and i shoot you to a couple of times and you say something and then maybe you sing a song i said no way <laughs> <laughs> and and the phone call was like boom no way so i called again and i said okay no narration but would you make a song for the film and he said yeah that i can do and uh, we started thinking, talking of one of his songs, which is Futile Devices, which in terms of the lyrics is incredibly adherent to the film. It's really fantastic. Like, it seems like written from after having read the book or seen the film. And I said, we spoke about that, we spoke about Elian Oliver, we spoke about the movie. 
And then a few months <coughs> later and a few calls later, uh, we were shooting the film and it was like an afternoon in which we had wrapped early, I guess. We were in my living room and we were resting and I got an email from Sufian and there were three songs. One was a re uh, uh, rearranging uh, of futile devices for, for piano, so that the universe of the of the instrument was close to Elio, and and then those two great 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 songs. I mean, I I remember we were astonished because those songs are really great, like beyond, like fantastic. And then we played them, and we were like, wow. And me and Walter, my editor, immediately knew where to put them, and so you had the song for you for you to think about. For, for the ending for many weeks. And now that sadly is the ending of today's Q&A, but to all our panellists, Luca, Timothy and Army, thank you very much. Thank you. you.